Want to start your own podcast? Anchor makes it super easy. Here's what you need to know about Anchor. Most importantly, it's free. Second, there are tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor distributes your podcast to numerous platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. You can make money from your podcast with minimum listenership, and it's everything you need to make a quality podcast all in one place. So what are you waiting for? Download the free Anchor app or visit anchor.fm to get started. The second part of this interview features Nasakle Akwete, the other half of the dynamic mother-daughter duo behind the Eugenia Shea and Mother Shea skincare brands. After attending Wellesley College in 08 with a stint at the London School of Economics, Nasakle spent four years in finance working for Lehman Brothers and Barclays Capital. Her position there entailed studying business models, understanding the opportunities and pitfalls, and being able to communicate these strategic opinions into a succinct investment decision. The majority of the companies in her purview produced consumer goods. In 2012, Nasa Clay matriculated to Harvard Business School, where she continued her focus on consumer goods as well as manufacturing, social enterprises, and family-run businesses. After graduation in 2014, she returned to finance where she served at JP Morgan as a U.S. equity analyst in the airline space. Shortly after, she decided to leave and jump into the agribusiness space with the founding of Nasa Clay International and delved into skincare with the launch of Eugenia Shea and joining the family business. Welcome back to another episode of WTF Podcast. So before we get into it, we just want to give a little aviso that during the interview, up coming up with Nasakle Aquete, daughter of Eugenia Quete, who you, you would have heard from um, in a previous episode. Hope you listened. If you didn't, make sure you go back and listen to that episode. Um, you don't want to miss it. But um, just letting you know that we had some special guests that joined us in that episode. So if you hear noises in the back, um, those are geese. Um, and geese got to live too. So they just wanted their turn, you know, to be heard. And so they made themselves heard. So don't be distracted. When you hear those noises, they are geese. I love this new, you know, corona realness that we're experiencing at the moment where it's just, you know, you have the Zoom bombers of the kids. of, of, of And then the geese bombers. <laughs> you have geese bombers. Um, and it's just always good reminder that entrepreneurs are – often multitasking and doing a number of things at the same time. And so I just appreciated Master Clay's ability to be flexible and, um, you know, keep pushing. She really, um, I had the 
pleasure of spending time with Nasser Clay when um, in in Morocco during a um, a conference uh, that came about through Trade Plus Impact, an organization that I'm involved with. And one thing that really struck me is that you know, Nasa Clay has a fantastic, you know, um, background and she's had some experiences on Wall Street, all things that would lead you to think, you know, this is somebody who should be in the C-suite of any company. Um, and whether she feels that this way or not, the incredible pride of taking all of that knowledge and plowing it into the family business and all of the ups and downs and all arounds of being an entrepreneur and the sacrifice of 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 what that looks like um it, it is just really inspirational to me so i I'm very curious about this kind of handing the baton to the next generation to drive and build and grow and hearing her insights, I think um, will be helpful to others who are thinking about this journey as well. So without further ado, let's hear from Masakai. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. So could you tell us a little bit about your personal journey that got you to where you are today? Yeah, for sure. So my family uh, is full of Ghanaian immigrants. I have two older brothers, my mom and dad. They all moved after a military coup in Ghana in the 70s. So I was born in D.C. in the mid-80s and grew up there with education being hugely important. Um, really like the basis of of everything that I was ever told growing up was how important education was. So went to a small boarding school for high school, went to Wellesley College outside of Boston for uh, university. And then I had wanted to be a math teacher, but then in college realized that kids are horrible. <laughs> um, I, I did a lot of like volunteering and teaching in my spare time and just I'm sure when I have kids, I will love them, but other people's kids are not great. Um, so... Apologies to all the parents of kids that are not <laughs> <laughs> Um, So I decided to kind of switch paths and I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. And my dad said, if you don't know what you want to do, you may as well do finance. Um, so I joined Lehman Brothers in the summer of 08 and we went bankrupt about a week after I joined my, my full-time post there. Um, we were subsequently purchased by Barclays Capital. So I was at Barcap for about four years before going to business school. Graduated from business school. And um, during my application process, I, I kind of thought that maybe I would join my mother's company. So my mom had a shea butter company. And... I thought maybe I would help her run it. Um, but around the time that I was graduating, I figured if I'm not a thousand percent sure on that, maybe I should go back to finance again. So I went back to finance and about a year later, my mom who had had stage four colon cancer recently um, had fallen Ill, uh, fallen sick with bacterial meningitis. So kind of in and out of comas and seizing and 
at that point, it became clear that she definitely could not run her business anymore. So I took over her company and um, five years later, here I am. So there's definitely an intergenerational connection here between your mom's business being the one who originally started and then you stepping in to help her run that business. What is it that you brought to the business that it lacked before? I think that my mom had my my mom had run the business somewhat conservatively and she was running it as a means to you know support other women but also support herself. So I think the scale at which she was thinking about the company was a little bit smaller. Um, I, like I said, it's been in, in finance for five years. I just graduated from business school pretty recently. And so I realized that there was a lot more potential to the company than what she was, what she was putting out there. Um, if only she had capital. And so I was lucky enough to have some and use the, those savings um, for working capital to put into the business and, with, with that working capital, she grew pretty, or we grew, I guess, pretty exponential, exponentially that first year. Um, and since then, the name of the game has been continuing to be able to access capital and grow accordingly. So, now with your finance, ex- financial experience and having spent, you know, five years in that space, Obviously, pivoting and moving into entrepreneurship must have been a learning curve for you also. I'm just curious about, you know, what you think you learned about entrepreneurship and what you really wish you would have known sort of coming in the door that you learned along the way. I think that there is there's nothing that you can learn in a textbook or in a classroom that really adequately prepares you. So having watched my mom run her business for 15 years, having spent two years kind of intellectually and academically understanding what it means to be an entrepreneur still didn't prepare me. And so I think that that what is really missing is the fact that like it's easy to say that you need to bootstrap. It's easy to say that you need to fail fast. It's easy to say that you need to listen to your customers and take their feedback and like every single entrepreneurial cliche there is there's a difference between intellectually understanding it and actually um living it so I don't know that there's there's anything that I've learned in the past five years that had I known going into it I you know would have would have changed that much Okay, so I know that once you got into the business with your mom, the focus of the business changed a little bit. Tell us a little bit more about the brands that were created, Eugenia Shea, Mother Shea, and the challenges that you are facing now as it relates to scaling and growing those two brands. Yeah, so maybe I'll take a step back and tell you about her business to begin with. My grandma, Grandma Sunshine, was a midwife in colonial Aragona. She used shea butter all the time on pregnant moms and on their babies for stretch marks and uh, diaper rash. 
And so my mom was around shea butter all the time growing up and in Ghana, shea butter is known as women's gold. So when she returned to Ghana in 2000, she realized that there are about 16 million women across sub-Saharan Africa who support themselves and their families through the shea industry. So these are women who are geographically fragmented. In fact, the town where she originally set up shop is like two hours outside the next city and got paved roads like within the relatively recently. Um, these are women who don't speak English, are not literate in their native language, don't have access to what we often consider basic technology. So again, a lot of our pickers don't have electricity at home. And what was happening was that market traders would drive their trucks to a village and the villagers were completely price takers. So mom started building cooperatives where they did not exist, strengthening cooperatives where they did exist to give them a little bit of bargaining power and essentially try and bridge that gap between these rural shea nut pickers and global shea butter demand. So she did that like for 15 years, was president of the Global Shea Alliance, advising governments and NGOs about shea standards and sustainability and where the industry should be going moving forward. And about 15 years in, around the time where she was getting, I was in business school and she was getting sick, I realized that even though shea butter is just insanely popular in, in the U.S. and in the Western world, you know, it's in everything from shampoos to toilet paper, a lot of the products that claim to have shea butter in them have just nominal amounts. So if you're walking down your beauty aisle, you'll see containers that say shea butter in like huge font and have like giant pictures of shea leaves and nuts. But if you flip over any one of those containers, shea butter is like the 20th ingredient. And so consumers weren't really getting the benefit that they thought they were getting. And so that's kind of, that was the impetus for Eugenia Shea, which was our first brand um, and is kind of for the prestige skincare space. And we launched it with the basic motto being the more shea butter, the better, but not all shea is created equally. So all of our Eugenia products had at least 80% pure shea butter in them. And that was the first ingredient of max five ingredients. And all of the ingredients were completely natural and clean. So it was shea butter, shea oil, moringa oil, baobab oil, and then essential oil for scent. And we had either grapefruit essential oil or lavender essential oil. Um, so when I was first launching, I knew I wanted to be like a prestige product, but it honestly took me a little bit to figure out what prestige meant. Um, you know, you think about like the, the retail space and there's Walmart, obviously. Um, so I knew that I, I, I didn't want to start there, but Whole Foods felt like premium. And so I was thinking about starting there um, and then ultimately settled on kind of like the anthropology space, like that kind of core demographic of consumer. And about two years ago, I was, um, you know, working on Eugenia and always knew that I was going to have another line that was like a little bit more mass and Target reached out to me to be part of their accelerator program. It's called Target Takeoff. And through Target Takeoff, I worked with them to develop the, that mass brand and that's called Mother Shea. So Eugenia Shea is in, like I said, anthropology, urban outfitters, kind of that like prestige um, lifestyle space. And then Mother Shea is kind of an affordable luxury brand that's in, in Target's. Did that answer your question, Michelle? Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about 
the process of getting into Target in terms of the amount of funding you need to make that happen? Yeah, so one of the things that I have found is that you can grow as quickly or as slowly as you want and your access to funding kind of makes that difference. So for the first few years that I was running the business, I was spending a lot of time and energy um, raising money for our B2B business. So like that bulk wholesale business and its operations. And I wasn't really spending much time or energy um, or money on the finished goods because I was lucky enough that I made them and they sold. And so being part of Target Takeoff was the, the first kind of foray into the fact that making a brand isn't just about making a product and having the kind of like, if you build it, they will come mentality. You have to actually make sure that it's in front of people, not just on shelf, but outside of the store as well to make sure that you have that kind of brand, um, brand awareness and drive people to store and make sure that when they're in store, they see your product and recognize it as well as the fact that like making a product that is going to launch in over 900 physical locations means having thousands of units of inventory available at the drop of a hat in order to to send when they place orders and so um that those the need for capital increased pretty dramatically when i started talking to target and some of that was just the acknowledgement that I had been underspending previously. And some of that was, this is actually a necessity now because you have partners that are holding you accountable. So in that same vein, uh, you know, when you, when you think about your funding journey and, you know, some of the listeners who are anticipating, you know, pitching for funding or looking for funding to scale. Are there any sort of pearls of wisdom that you could impart just about the journey in general? And then, um, yeah, just any kind of insights on that? I would say that there is, there's very, very technically a lot of money available in the world, depending on the types of, um, the types of terms you're willing to take, but there's not a ton of like friendly capital, um, is a little bit harder to find. And so what I would say is try and make an effort as much as possible to hold out for, and, you know, tap your networks in order to find that friendly capital. So for example, like the first couple of years that we were going, I was trying to find a loan and the loan terms were pretty high percentage um, interest as well as like, you know, collateralizing a lot of personal assets. And I think Michelle, Michelle and I were talking about this recently. Like if you believe in yourself and a company, putting your own assets on the line is a fair request to make, but it's not a request that everybody is 
Like that's, that's, that's not something that banks are asking everybody to do. It's just certain people, unfortunately. Um, and so acknowledging that those are not, those are not normal terms. Those are not necessarily fair terms. And there is other capital out there. If you find it, um, that will be a better, that will set yourself up a little bit better for success. So what are some examples of that type of capital? Of the fair capital or the unfair capital? That's more friendly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I really entered a new space when I started, um, interacting with social impact investors. Um, I got, I think it's a space that I didn't really know very much about, but there are some investors who specifically uh, fund projects that are, that have social impact in some way baked into them. So either um, it's for a demographic, loans for a demographic that don't normally have access to, to funding. That's a um, bird. You want second, me to stop? One second yeah. now. Hold on for a second. Like, it sounds like a donkey. <laughs> I don't know what's, There's what's like going on. There's, like, a goose nearby, and she's getting, like, wildly aggressive. I love it. <laughs> I'm like, what is that sound? <laughs> it's like, I, wait, wait, I know something. I know yeah. about fucking. <laughs> what do you have to say, goose? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know that a goose was being invited to this conversation. <laughs> Sorry. I was like, what? going on in the background you think okay there's a a subset of investors who specifically fund with a focus on some type of social impact so that could be either funding demographics who generally have less access to funding or it could be for projects that have a social mission kind of baked into the company and we um have always found it to be really, really important to have a social mission baked into our company. So our, our official mission is to support as many women as possible, as holistically as possible. And I didn't realize that having that as our mission would open up an entirely different um, arena of funding to us, but it has. And so we, we, we were really lucky to find that relatively early on. Um, would you be able to share some examples of social impact investors that are friendly towards businesses of this type? Yeah. For other people who might be listening and are curious? Definitely. So um, the first company to take a chance on us, I believe, was a company called MS, uh No, it was um, RSF. Rudolf Steiner Foundation. They're based in San Francisco and they have been absolutely incredible, 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 incredible um, partners. They've been wildly patient and thoughtful and kind and generous. And I can't say enough positive things about them. Um, We also have worked with MCE Capital. I can't remember what that acronym stands for, but MCE Capital. And they're based, I believe, in Europe, and they've also been really great partners. They, their model is m- more um, kind of like accounts receivable backed. So like if you have purchase orders from a company for bulk, like a bulk uh, purchase order, they will use that PO and as 
collateral for the loan that they're giving you. And essentially like their, their focus is tri-party agreements, which essentially means that they give you the loan up front. And then when your customer pays you, they actually pay MCE um, and MCE will take a percentage and pass the remainder on to you. Um, so MCE, another one's Palladium. They're one of our more recent in investors and similarly have kind of social impact as the basis of their investments. Um, and all of those players are primarily um, debt. I believe Palladium might do equity as well, but um, for the most part, all three of those are debt. Um, we were also in conversations with a company called Vested World, and they're actually private equity investors um, who, even though we didn't ultimately take funding from them, have been really, really wonderful thought partners and um, great people who believe in in their mission and have gone above and beyond to support us as a company and me as, as a person since we met, um, I think, maybe four years ago. Um, yeah, so there, there's, let's see, INP is another one who we did not take funding from, but is out in the, the social impact world and um, seem to be kind of a thought leader in the space as well. Great. It sounds like there's, you know, some good news stories about, um, you know, funding mechanisms and uh, companies and um, entities that sort of really see building that partnership as more important, um, you know, downstream. So one of the things that a mentor of mine who works in the philanthropy space talks about is, you know, sometimes money isn't actually the root cause of what you need. And so can you, even though this uh, podcast is about funding and finance and the realities around that, have you found instances where it's really money isn't really the issue and how have you resolved those challenges? That is, that's definitely true. And something that's really top of mind for me right now as I think about potentially taking on more sources of funding. Um, I'm really committed to hopefully having our next new partner be some type of strategic partner. And so that means somebody with connections in either the skincare space or retailer space or, um, you know, so, uh, uh, individual or company who can support us, not just with a cash infusion, but also in opening doors for us. And that can take the form of, luckily so far, we've, we've been able to um, just have people open their networks to make introductions to us for, like I said, retailers or uh, contract manufacturers or advertisers or whatever it is, just because they have been kind. Um, there gets to be a point where you want more help than it feels appropriate to ask for without also offering up equity. And that's, I think, kind of where I, I think I'm edging into right now. And so, yeah, those, those strategic partners would take the form of both giving me money in exchange for equity, but also opening doors for me to, to get us to like the next stage of growth and, and um, distribution. 
how important would you say that networking is to accessing capital? And you coming from a finance sort of Wall Street background, do you think you have an easier time with this search for capital vis-a-vis -vis somebody who is not from your background? Or did you do you feel as if you've run into a lot of challenges that, you know, somebody, other people who don't have a finance background would still run into? I think that half of the battle is, is understanding the different types of money there are out there. And so from that perspective, I definitely have a bit of an edge. Um, but the other side of it is being having access to those people. And I, even though I was in finance, was not in any type of like social impact space previously. So I didn't, my networks didn't really involve social impact investors. Um, I wasn't in the private equity space. I wasn't in the venture capital space. So even though I was in finance and understood what each of those realms were, I, my networks didn't really overlap much with them. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I, I did have, I did have an edge as it related to understanding the space, but less of an edge as it related to like accessing that space. And so I think that networking really, really has been important for me, which is hard because I, I don't really love, I don't really love asking for, or historically, I haven't really loved asking for help. I think one thing that they don't tell you when you start a business is that like, in order to succeed in business, you kind of do have to like get over that and ask for help when you need it. Um, and I think that one thing that, again, I've been really lucky about is that a lot of the doors that have been opened to me haven't been opened as, as a function of like going to a drinks event and like handing out business cards and like, I don't know, can, you know, give, doing like a hard sell over cocktail hour. Um, it's been a lot of like tertiary friends. Like I meet one person who has a friend who knows somebody else who has a friend who knows somebody else who has a friend who knows somebody else. And, um, all of a sudden you are meeting somebody who has written for the New York times and is willing to write about you as, um, because they like what you're doing, but also like kind of potentially as a favor or, um, you know, somebody who. Um, I was introduced to RSF to begin with through Sephora Accelerate. So like friends that I had made through a program already um, were willing to then tap their networks for me. And so I think that um, I guess my point is that I've been, it's been more effective for me to m make friends and, and, give and take in those friendships than it has to like be like glad handing all the time. I don't know if that's like a distinction that makes sense, but like um, be always being open to building new friendships and building new relationships as opposed to like setting up like meet and greets all the time. 
yeah, that that point resonates with with both Michelle and myself. We were just talking about that, um, you know, just the knowing what knowing the power of networking and appreciating the role that it plays, but also knowing that you know sometimes it's about making that one meaningful connection as opposed to just the smash and grab of meeting you know 20 30 people you know sometimes it really is uh quality over quantity mm -hmm. so um in that same vein you know thinking about this for the long haul thinking about the you know the tertiary relationships and sometimes the power of weak ties and and just strategic partnerships and the like you know what i'm hearing is that you have to be in it for the long haul for the for the visionary place uh the zenith that you're trying to get to and so that really takes resilience and so you know what is your personal philosophy now around things that are disappointing or overwhelming you know how do you build the resilience to keep going especially when you have such um ideas and thoughts about where you want your business to go Ooh, that's a that's a hard question because there are a lot of ups and downs and lots of specifically downs. So um, I guess just trying to remember why you're doing it and what your ultimate goal is. So, for example, I was speaking with a retailer recently, and it's a retailer that I've always, always loved and has always been on like my list of companies that I want to partner with. And they, it took me literal years to get somebody to like try a sample and they tried a sample recently and liked it. And I was about to start onboarding and then the buyer went radio silent and I was kind of like, what's, what's going on? You know, I'm calling, I'm emailing. I, the other day, like, stopped by their office and like wrote a physical note and sent it up to her and she got back to me and was like listen we still love your product but skincare hasn't been selling for us right now so I'm gonna have to like pause this onboarding and maybe one day that'll change but for the immediate future it's not going to and so I for like weeks now have that's like been the number one thing on my radar or like one of the top things on my radar is moving forward with this retailer. And when I got that email from her, it was like, oh, great. So there goes, you know, a um, year's worth, but a month's worth of like more concentrated effort. And this means that everything is a failure and nothing's ever going to succeed again. And, you know, everything's horrible. And then you take a step back and realize that, okay, that retailer is awesome as they are. Um, is just one out of hundreds of potential retailers. And not only that, but you're, you are getting success in like retailers that are bigger than that one. Like that was a, an emotional connection that you had, but um, it's not actually the end of the world. There are other opportunities out there for you to grab. And there are opportunities that are bigger that you have already succeeded with and so what, 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 what can you do now to 
continue to be on that path. Maybe I'll just like stop and repeat that. Can you hear the bird or no? No, you know what? I, I, there's something about the authenticity of this that I'm just living for. Let's just leave the leg. I'm just, let's just go with it. Let, let him or her have their voice. We'll talk about it, you know, in the intro, the outro. This, yeah, let's go with it. Okay. Um, so, yeah, even though that one thing didn't go as like I wanted it to be to go, I'm not off of the path to success. It hasn't derailed me in any way. And so take a breath, maybe have a drink, get a good night's sleep and and move on. Yeah. It's just you're in it for the long haul. So, you know, these these obstacles in the way you know, you just, you kind of have to put it in perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think we've come to the end of the road of this conversation and now we can give the goose back his space to (laughs) do what geese do (laughs) because we were clearly interrupted whatever his Saturday plans were. (laughs) Yeah. Who ruled the world? Geese, apparently. Right. Um, yeah. But no, thank you so much for joining us. And we are grateful to have you on this platform. And we're looking forward to also talking to your mother, Eugenia, on another episode to get sort of her origin story about around how she started NASA Clay and where things are today and working with you. But where can we find you now? Yes, yes. Please check us out. Um, we're Our newest brand, Mother Shay, is in over 900 target locations nationally um so if you're wondering whether it's in one near you you can go to our website which is mothers with an s at the end shay.com and um there's a store locator so you can put in your zip code and figure out uh where you can get us and what about your socials where can we find you on social media yes so we are on every platform mothers with an s shay so m-o-t-h-e-r-s S-H-E-A, um, as well as Eugenia Shea, so E-U-G-E-N-I-A-S-H-E-A. Perfect. Well, thank you, Na, for what I think is just a really great insight into the idea of sort of having a career and pivoting and taking over your mother's company. I mean, it's just an inspiration. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. And um have a great weekend. Thank you for for asking me to be on and for listening to me and for all of the support that you both have have given us over the last, you know, I mean, for you, Lydia, maybe decade almost. Um. (laughs) That would age me, but I guess so. Don't put Lydia out there. Back when you were in high school, you were such a such a help. See, we're on the same page there. <laughs> she was just ahead of her years. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank now. you. Thank you so Have much. Have a good one. Okay. Bye. What I really enjoyed about the show is the number of resources that Nah dropped. Can I tell you gems? Gems, gems, gems. And for somebody I've got the basket, them, I've got the basket, I've got the basket, and I'm collecting, I'm collecting. <laughs> Collect these gems, collect them, because you know that Nah has done her research, and as somebody that um is you know is looking at these opportunities every day, you know that 
you know, these are things that you should be aware of if this is, if, you know, you're in this space in terms of your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, she's put in that Harvard Business School education to use. Listen, necessary. Hashtag necessary. (laughs) What I really loved also is hearing the vulnerability of just the recent experiences she's had with going for investment, you know, developing those relationships and it not being the happy ending. And I think looking at, you know, the the concept of making the play, but being willing to walk away. Hashtag make the play, but be willing to what, Lydia? Walk away. All right. Walk away is really important. You know, not developing these unrealistic ties to investment and and, and potential, potential um, funding opportunities because it feels comfortable and warm to be there. But just, you know, as Desiree Young said, just figure out if this is going to work for you and if not be willing to just move on pack it up and move on so I really enjoyed it because you know it was definitely happening in real time and you could hear you know the disappointment but you could also hear her sort of pivoting to what's the new thing um yeah I mean I Na is a fantastic resource I think any any organization any company would be um you know lucky to have somebody as thoughtful and as smart and as discerning as she is but the fact again that she's plowing it all into her family business and the love of her mother and the fact that their brands represent that is so beautiful to me it's so beautiful and let's just talk about this love story between mother and daughter right Mm. eugenia naming the business nasa clay and then when Nasa Clay joined, naming one of the brands Eugenia to honor our mom. So it's sort of this story about daughters honoring mothers. And I think it's just a really sweet story. So it's not just a business story. It's a family story. And it's a love story at the, at the heart of it between a mother and her daughter. Absolutely. So guys, we hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed Um, recording it, geese and all, and that you will listen to actually both parts. So Eugenia's uh, interview and then Nasa Clay's so that you can put both of them together and in context. So make sure you're subscribing, liking, rating, reviewing, and all that good stuff. And we are very open to feedback. So hit us up at where's the funding at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.